0: Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively
1: and think differently. Let's go. To me, that was what was missing in my MBA program. They were setting us up to know how to do what calculators knew how to do and how CPAs knew how to do. I didn't grasp what am I going to actually go get hired for? I'd be an analyst or something like that? That's not of interest to me. I am interested in creating. Or manufacturing opportunity out of thin air. And so I gravitated more towards sales, and they were just getting ready to start an entrepreneurship focus in that MBA program, and I just missed it. So that would have been what I would have definitely concentrated on. Hey
2: Left fielders this is Julian McClerkin. When I'm not on the court with the Harlem Globetrotters, I'm the chief storyteller for TribeFest. Now you might be thinking, why would TribeFest hire a Globetrotter? Well, through my travels around the world, I've met so many amazing people and heard their incredible stories. And it's no different at TribeVest. My job is to share the stories of people investing together as a group, as a tribe. TribeVest allows groups to pool their capital, set up their LLCs and bank accounts, help with operating agreements, funding rounds, and so much more. Whether you're investing with other dads from your kid's preschool class or getting into real estate syndications with people around the country like LFI infielder Brian Pawnell, TribeVest helps them all make it happen. If you want to hear more about stories about TribeVest customers, just check out TribeVest's YouTube channel. And if you're already ready to start investing as a group, head on over to TribeVest.com today.
3: You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeFest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn, and become part of the Left Field community.
1: This is Brian Burke from Praxis Capital, and you are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast.
0: I'm really excited today to have Logan Freeman with us. He is the co-founder and chief development officer at FTW Investments, a firm focused on helping investors build wealth through selective private investments. Now, he did a lunch and learn for us in October on recession-resistant asset classes, which was fantastic. So we will get into some of that. But the way we like to start, Logan, is if you could tell us a little bit about your financial journey. How did you get into real estate? How did you get into operations? Just give us the whole
1: story there. You bet, Jim. Thank you for having me on today. Let's go back to the beginning when I was 14 years old in Jefferson City, Missouri. And I grew up middle class and my mom working two jobs and working very hard. And I always saw her struggling to put food on the table and always wondering where the next dollar was going to come from. So when I was 14, I was a, I'm a big guy. I'm an athlete. And I wouldn't got a job. What kind of job can a 14-year-old? In the Midwest, you can bale hay and you can wash dishes. And so I found two jobs, baling hay on the weekends and when it wasn't raining and starting at as a helper at a catering business. And I started to make some money. Five fifteen dollars an hour was the minimum wage back in 2004, believe it or not. And then entered high school where I got my first personal finance class. And I guess you guys can probably imagine who it was, Dave Ramsey and budgeting and the envelope system and saving and all of the different things. Now, I don't bash Dave Ramsey because his entree leadership, his business is applicable to a lot of people. Probably not listening to this podcast, but it is applicable to a lot of folks. And what it did, it gave me the idea of saving dollars to reinvest at a later time. And I loved that class. And so when I was 15, I started my first Roth IRA, had to have my mom co-sign on it. And I was just so excited about that becoming my nest egg. Fast forward, I'm a collegiate athlete. I play football at the Division II University of Central Missouri. Go Mules! and I got picked up as an undrafted free agent with the Oakland Raiders. That didn't work out, and so I went back to school and finished my master's program. And when I did, I had a big transformation. One, I had to get a job because I no longer had a scholarship, and so I was working full-time and going to school full-time. But I also had a big physical transformation. I was 335 pounds at the NFL Combine, and so I lost 120 pounds in six months. People that I hadn't seen for six months saw me and, and literally walked. Walked past me, even though I went to school with him for four years prior. A no joke, it was wild, and and really just figured out how to apply the same goal mechanisms that I had for athletics to my health. And but I had a I had an hour drive to this job, and so I turned my car to the classroom on wheels. So I started to listen to John Lee Dumas when when podcasts were pretty new. Lewis Howes, The School of Greatness. Then guess what? Robert Kiyosaki showed up and Rich Dad, Poor Dad and all of these different things. And so I started to ask my teachers in my master's program, why are you not teaching me this? Why are you not speaking about this? And one of my marketing, my favorite class, one of my marketing teachers was. It was Seth Godin. It was The Power of Habit, Charles Duhigg, all of these cool ideas that I had never really heard of. And so that started my journey on personal and professional development. I moved to Kansas City. I'll step back. I went through a big transformation as well. Life event. My I lost my father to his battle with drugs and alcohol during the same period of time. So you can imagine 24-year-old lost 120 pounds, no longer an athlete, trying to move to Kansas City, but then loses his dad. So just all of this stuff going on. And I really had some mentors in my life that said, hey, you got a decision to make right now. And that decision is going to dictate how your life goes. And that was very instrumental in me with for me. And so I started had these mentors really mentee me. And one of them was a successful investor. And I and he kept talking about passive income and all this stuff. And then that, about that same time I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad and was like, Oh my gosh, you're my rich dad here you are in the flesh. And so not only was I reading these ideas that were complete at the theoretical level, I was seeing them being applied effectively out there in the real world. So merging those two got me really interested. And I still remember I had a pontoon down at the Lake of the Ozarks that I sold a long time ago, but I took my buddy out and my sister and I drove around all those million dollar mansions. And I said, one day I'm going to be able to get one of those and here's how. And I laid out this crazy idea of all this stuff I was going to do in real estate. So Moved to Kansas City, youngest franchise consultant that Jimmy John's ever hired. I had 25 stores in four different markets, did that job for a year, hit a glass ceiling. And I said, what's next? And they said, well, you're the youngest guy in the company. You got to put your time in. Two weeks later, I was gone. I was at a startup company with three people doing sales, doing everything as a startup, learning just, but had the opportunity to be paid what I was worth. That was an incredible opportunity. I was there for about three years. Moved up to another sales role and then was, boom, 15 months into that sales role, fired. And so I was like, holy cow, six-figure sales job. That's big for a Jeff City boy in Kansas City. No expenses, all the stuff. Just newly married, no job. And I had read 600, 700 books at this point, And a lot of them were all around business and personal and professional development. I, and my wife goes, Logan, check your email when you get home. And I did, I was like, okay, I checked my email and my box of cardboard box of books, brought them off my desk and I went home. And she had already started what is now the holding company for over 1400 multifamily units and about $150 million in real estate. And she said, I'm gonna support you with whatever you decide to do. And so I didn't just get started buying my own real estate. Okay, I got started as a practitioner. I was a head of acquisitions for a $50 million fund based in Kansas City. They had a simple model. It was a syndication model where they raised the fund upfront. They bought single family homes for cash, seven days, and then they would renovate them. And then we did a huge Corvest portfolio refinance. We were the sixth group in the country to do that when that product came out. And whenever it was completed, I just had to ask them, where'd the money come from? And that's when they said it was a syndication. And I said, I would like to do that, but on larger properties, multifamily and commercial. And so that is what kind of got me into purchasing larger assets. And I started to do so with my own funds. I did 165 single family homes in a year and then was a very successful broker on multifamily and triple net lease shopping centers. And so had a little bit of money, but ran out of experience and knowledge and money very quickly. And so sat back down with a really successful real estate mentor of mine, here in Kansas City. I said, what am I missing? What am I doing? How did you do this? And they said, but you really need to break down all of the functions of a real estate business, find what you're good at and find partners and or solve for the rest. And so that took another 15 or 16 months to do that introspective process, but then go find the right individuals to partner with. And back in late 2019, that's when we found each other, my business partners and what is now FTW Investments, which is a private equity company based out of Kansas City, Missouri. We are vertically integrated. We are mostly the operators on all of these projects. And we have about 28 employees now and continuing to grow the portfolio. And that's my journey. That's, let's say, that was a nine-minute explanation, but a lot happened in that nine minutes in my life. But happy to dive into anything, Jim, that you think is beneficial.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. That There's so much there. Fantastic that you've been able to go through all these steps and it feels like you seem like you found where you want to end up if you, you found your niche as an operator. I want to go back to when you were in college, I guess the second time the MBA program, what were you studying and what were they teaching? It seems like they weren't teaching you the kind of financial freedom stuff. A lot of that stuff, they don't teach in high school, college, or even an MBA, how to get into real estate. It's all stock market stuff. And so what was your major or what were you concentrating on for the MBA? And then can you talk a little bit about what they were teaching and what you think they should have been teaching you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's one of my passionate topics that I rarely speak on, but very passionate about. I was learning statistical analysis and and regression analysis and accounting, even though I wasn't an accountant. I had a general concentration as a master's in business administration. In my focus, I took every marketing class that I possibly could because it had sales involved in it. I couldn't grasp in my MBA, what is business? How do you get going in this industry? What skills do you need? And for me, it always came back to marketing and sales and communication. And I figured that accounting and finance, you could find really smart people that are really good at that thing. But communicating, changing the, and influencing somebody from one aspect of their life and helping them change to something else, that got me really interested. Thinking differently about life in general got me really interested. And I see Angela Duckworth's Grit book on your shelf, which is one of my top books and frankly is one of FTW's core values is Be Gritty. And that's passion and perseverance. And To me, that was what was missing in my MBA program. They were setting us up to know how to do what calculators knew how to do and how CPAs knew how to do. I didn't grasp, what am I going to actually go get hired for? it would be an analyst or something like that. That's not of interest to me. I am interested in creating or manufacturing opportunity out of thin air. And so I gravitated more towards sales and they were just getting ready to start an entrepreneurship focus in that MBA program. And I just missed it. So that would have been what I would have definitely concentrated on. But when I look at what was been really successful in my MBA program was were books like Stephen Covey's, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Charles Duhigg, The Power of Habit, Seth Godin's The Purple Cow, those types of concepts. And ideas that I just got in one class that just blossomed into a lifelong passion of understanding how individuals make decisions. And what moves them to make a decision because we are in the business in real estate for people to think differently Because what is taught in school is the Dave Ramsey's is all of the stock market and all that and that's not bad But when you get into a business where you're creating value It's really difficult to get people to think differently unless you understand those concepts and how they're going to make decisions And that's really what I think a lot of individuals would benefit from is just understanding psychology how people make decisions decisions, and then how to effectively communicate ideas in a way that people can grasp. Because you can be super intellectual and be able to talk at a very high level. That's just going to wash wide over many people's heads. I've been in the business now for seven or eight years. And even when I start talking about cap rates or things like that, cash on cash or return on investment with people that aren't in the industry, they start to look at me and say, wait, you just used seven acronyms in a span of two minutes. Can you step back and explain that to me? And so I heard this in a book or I read this in a book saying, if you can't explain it to a third grader, then you're talking at too much of a high level. Now, obviously that depends on who your audience is, right? But at the end of the day, a lot of the individuals that I end up having conversations with are getting used to looking at these types of investments. And so you really got to break these things down because they are complex ideas when you start to get into waterfalls and how everything works. But you have to really make it rudimentary and able for somebody to understand because a, a confused mind, always says no and if you confuse somebody you're done so you have to be able to to slow down like i'm talking really fast right now but uh, your your listeners can probably go back and slow me down if they're listening at 1.5 speed like i do with my podcast i talk at 1.5 speed so you have to slow me down a little bit but that's a really lost skill i think is the sales is the communication relationship building because In our business, I look at every new opportunity and or problem-solving solution, and it has been tied to somebody. An opportunity, they don't just waver out there in thin air. They're always attached to somebody body. And that means having a really strong network. So if you're in school or thinking about going back to an MBA, I would highly recommend looking at Tim Ferriss's real world MBA kind of class. I'm pretty sure it's free now on what he dissected much better than I do in any way, the skills and how he evaluates and and is an early investor in a lot of these companies, but real world MBA type of stuff. And there's a big thick book called The Real World MBA that was extremely beneficial for me to grasp these business concepts as well.
0: No, that's great. And you said a couple of times that differently. And that's one of our taglines at Left Field Investors. Because if you're in the alternative investment space, by definition, you're already thinking differently because you're getting out of Wall Street and the conventional personal finance and getting into what we call community personal finance, which is using your community to help you become a better investor in alternatives. So I love how you say that. And then you mentioned mentors, right? How did you get your mentors and why? What do you use your mentors for? And do you still have? mentors.
1: Yeah, mentors are extremely important. And they're very busy, typically, unless they've are lifestyle design type of individuals, which is very helpful as well. But mentors have been able to take my learning curve and exponentially increase it through leverage. Meaning, if I go read a book, I'm still going to go out and take action. And I'm probably going to take some action that I learned out of a book, but I'm still going to have to learn. Through mentors, I can explain conversations, challenges that I'm going through. And they can say, 20 years ago, Logan, I did this and I experienced something similar to that. And here's what the outcome was. That alone helps me shorten the learning curve. Now, mentors you have to be very careful with because there's a lot of structured mentors out there. That's not really what I typically look for. I look for somebody who is living the life on my four Kind of core values my faith my family my fitness and my future and so if i can see that they're living a life that from the outside looking in that they have those core things taken care of that's somebody i'm interested in because just because it's somebody has a billionaire status doesn't mean that's a mentor that i'm interested in speaking with because if they don't have an awesome faith life or family life and fitness is all off. That means they went really deep on one thing and neglected everything else. I'm looking like from a holistic standpoint, trying to find somebody that can really bring all aspects because it's really easy for guys like myself to get super focused on one goal and one thing and forget everything else. Now, when directed the right way, that can be extremely beneficial. But when it's not, you can also create a lot of drag in your life. So that's one. The second is a structured mentor type of group that I like to be a part of. I love masterminds. I love getting involved with other people and I love doing it in person. And so I have joined a structured CEOs group here in Kansas City called Acumen. It's a faith-based group and they're CEOs of $250 million companies and $5 million companies. Growing companies and guys who are stepping down from the CEO position and working on transition plans. And I get to bring all of my challenges and issues and have conversations with them in a room, structured every single month. And I just love that because that helps, again, shorten that learning curve. Now, how did I find them? That's the hard part, right? So that's, I'm a master networker. I make it my job to tell everybody what we're working on, meeting a lot of people on a regular basis. But when you identify somebody who can be a potential mentor, you have to find ways to add value to them first, without asking for anything. And so my whole approach was, okay, I'm going to ask questions and I appreciate that. And then I ask all those questions. I'm taking notes. I take a lot of notes. I think that's really important if you're meeting somebody is to take notes and you can take notes and still have a good conversation with somebody. I've, I'm a living prodigy of that. I take a ton of notes so I don't forget things. But then I go back and I review those notes a day later. I let it sit for a day and then I go, okay, Who can I connect to this individual with? What is one thread that I heard? It's a simple acronym, OSA. I make an observation, I share a story, and then I ask a question. So I'm finding interests, but I'm also finding ways that I can add value. So I love to gift books. I love to write in the books so they can't just turn around and sell them. And I love to send those books to those individuals with a thank you card. I love to follow up with an email. I love to make connections. So taking one person and connecting them to another one. I love to invite people to different events and things like that that I'm interested in and give a lot of gifts really do to, to these mentors. And one time, I remember somebody grasped onto that and said, oh my gosh, I just finished the book that you got me. I said, let's have a follow-up meeting and talk about the book. And then we had a discussion about that. That has grown into the first JV partnership that this very successful real estate investor has done over the last 20 years was a meeting just like that. So always looking for ways to add value before you're asking for something, I think is extremely important. And you, you might be able to meet a mentor three or four times before you figure out, if there's a way that that person can add value. And then after you've built that relationship, you basically structure your own challenges and mentorship guidelines. So you create a rubric and you email this rubric and say, hey, John, here are the four things that I'm really struggling with. And you detail those or challenges that I'm seeing. Would you be willing to meet with me on a monthly, quarterly basis just to talk through these things and share some of the experiences that you've gone through? You just can't do that from day one without building that relationship first. You can't do it too fast. And so add value. Make sure that you're taking notes. Show that you took notes and always point out something that you learned from that mentor. And they will grasp it back onto you and pour into you for free, which can be one of the most amazing benefits of this industry. And many people will willing to do that. I've done it with a lot of individuals myself.
2: Hi, this is Zach Haptenstahl, CEO and co-founder of Rise48 Equity. At Rise48, we partner with investors like you to purchase large apartment buildings that we renovate to increase the value and create a profit margin for our investors through monthly passive cash flow distributions and profits on sale. We're a vertically integrated company specializing in the Phoenix, Arizona and Dallas, Texas markets with over 200 plus full time W-2 employees who are focused on making sure your investment is taken care of. To learn more about Rise48Equity's multifamily investments, schedule a call with me at Rise48Equity.com backslash invest.
0: Madison Investing is on a mission to democratize passive investing and make private real estate syndications and funds accessible to all accredited investors. To do so, Madison Investing developed Blueprint, a seven-part course that educates investors on how to develop an effective passive real estate investment strategy. Learn how syndications and funds offer investors a way to own a part of multifamily properties, self-storage businesses, and other asset classes with limited liability and potential for regular distributions while achieving strong ROI. For a limited time, Madison investing is offering our listeners blueprint for free at madisoninvesting.com blueprint. Madison Investing CEO, Spencer Hillegoss is a registered representative of Finalis Securities, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Investing in real estate while capable of producing attractive returns entails a high degree of risk, including illiquidity of the investment and loss of principal. Well, wow, that's great stuff on mentors, because I think a lot of people are looking for someone to help them or want to mentor. And you just walk around saying, hey, who wants to mentor me? You're going to struggle. But the process you put in place, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. I want to switch now because th- this has been fantastic. A lot of mindset stuff. I want to go into your business. You you did a lunch and learn for left field investors. I think it was in October about recession resistant asset classes And without redoing the whole lunch and learn, obviously, if if people want to view that, it's on a Leftfield Investor YouTube channel and I highly recommend it. But what are those asset classes and why are they recession resistant, which we may need near future?
1: As we evaluate the real estate market as a whole, and especially other property types and sectors outside of just multifamily, we've noticed that other supply and demand imbalances that we like to key in on. And here's the hard part about this, because Typically, the best time to purchase certain asset types that maybe aren't highly educated or marketed is also the most difficult period of time to find partners for because you see a lot of headlines out there around, let's just take retail, for example. Retail is dying and all the e-commerce is going to take over the world. Okay, but let's actually step back and realize that in 2022, 85% of all retail sales happened in brick and mortar. and e-commerce dropped from 16.4% of web penetration down to 14.4%. So we're back to pre-COVID level. So the areas where we're especially interested in is neighborhood office, neighborhood office shopping center, as well as flex industrial properties. And that's very unique in the sense that there's not that many of these flex industrial properties, but it's because of the onshoring that has happened with manufacturing and folks trying to control their supply chain. Now, why each of those is compelling... To us at this time is that I've got data and anecdotal evidence to support that on a physical supply and demand side that we have stronger physical demand than is largely believed to exist, standing against a flat or flattening supply. And on the capital market side, these properties are trading at spreads above their historical cap rates. This is simply going back to Sam Zell's book, Am I Being Too Subtle, and reviewing his investment thesis. So what that means is that these properties are performing better physically than the market believes yet the capital markets due to some foundational misunderstanding about those properties is not highly demanding them, bringing asset prices to historical lows. And so if you believe that capital demand for those assets are going to come back once those assets have a longer time to prove their resilience and necessity in the physical marketplace as we do, then now is the time to acquire those properties at discounted price and position ourselves to sell back into a higher capital demand, thus a higher priced market. Now, recession resistant. You're going to hear the tagline that everybody needs a roof over their head. And that is true. Now, one thing that you have to always be keeping an eye on is what is the supply that's coming online, right? And can people continue to pay the rents that are needed for these properties? And that's on the multifamily side. I'm not going to get into a debate about where and how and all of those things. There's a lot of opportunities out there in the multifamily sector. But when I see multifamily properties in 2022, early 2022 trading below a five cap, maybe a four and a half cap in Kansas City, Missouri, that is an interesting perspective to have. When you look at the 10-year treasury and where cap rates are, that's a very tight spread right now. So it's very difficult for people to say, okay, I'm going to go buy a four and a half cap multifamily property when I can buy a 10-year treasury with very little to no risk for that same return. That being said, there are tax benefits and all those things. But When I look at recession-resistant, I'm looking for where are the trends going that were pre-COVID, that COVID exacerbated, and new trends that have happened and stuck around. So let's take office, for example. Office is not something that I'm very interested in investing in. Because I believe that it's going to take two to three years for businesses to really figure out what it's going to take for them to get people back into the office. And when unemployment is at a historical low at 3.7%, and we still have 10 million job openings, that's going to stick around for a little bit, in my opinion. And so, Workers still have the power in that. So office, maybe not so interesting to me. And I think that many people would agree with that. Neighborhood retail. Retail is interesting because you have to break down inside of retail. You've got big box retail. You have grocery anchored retail. You have suburban neighborhood retail. You have all these different subsets. And I think that investments that really are good work on the margins. And so there's a very specific type. And my favorite saying from Russell Gray, the Real Estate Guys podcast is, the riches are in the niches. And you have to understand what those niches are. So we can look at historical data and go back to 2008, 2009, 2010, and see how certain property performed. But if you look at industrial, the demand for industrial is much higher now than it was during that recession. So that's not really an apples to apples assessment. So you have to look at the macro trends that we're seeing right now. And what that is, e-commerce is difficult because it takes logistics space. It takes a lot of people to move that product. And people are starting to believe that they can find better deals in stores and they want to get out into stores and shop. And so what asset class supports that? Neighborhood retail shopping centers do. Maybe not big regional malls. Now, I have seen some really exciting redevelopments of regional malls where they're taking the malls and you're able to actually drive up and go to some big box like a Barnes and Noble or something on on that side. That's the driver in and then you go into the mall. But largely speaking, malls are going to have to be repurposed in a big way depending on the geographic location. Self-storage is of interest to us. It always has been. It always will be. But that has been a very competitive market. And frankly, I believe it has been supplied heavily over the last two years. So that's one that we're not really pushing on. So where our thesis is right now for recession-resistant asset classes is, where are the asset classes that we feel comfortable operating in, that we have a competitive advantage on, and that other people may be overlooking? And so Thus, they're priced better. For example, we have a neighborhood retail shopping center we're working on right now that just appraised for $350,000 more than what we're under contract for. That is because of what I just explained on the capital market side. So I think about recession, and I've done a lot of reading on this, and you can find thoughts on both sides of the story, right? There are some serious markers economically that we need to be keeping an eye on that I'm watching very closely. A couple of resources, Peter Lineman with Lineman Associates, Richard Duncan with MacroWatch, Hunter Thompson's podcast is phenomenal. He has a lot of those guys on and interviews them. And so does Willie Walker with Walker and Dunlop is a great one because they have these best of the best individuals coming on, disseminating their information. So highly recommend those resources on that front. But I think that for us and for investors going into 2023, it's really important to understand the cap stack on your properties. And frankly, one thing that we did very well early on was long-term fixed rate debt on all of our deals. And we will continue to do... Here's why. Mentor came to me and said, Logan, you never want to be in a position where you have to sell something because when you have to sell is going to be the worst time that you can sell. And so there's a lot of situations with cap stacks that have floating rate debt that we're keeping an eye on that may need... To be recapitalized. And so, if you're looking, if you're a passive investor looking at deals, I would say what's the intrinsic value of the cash flows? What is the current cash flows? What are the assumptions being made on future? Cash flows because going under contract on a multifamily property at a five cap and hoping that you can sell at a three cap is a risky proposition right now. So cash flow and where can you get basis when you go back to Sam Zell, man, that guy they call him the Grave Dancer because he bought stuff and still buys stuff at a very low price. Maybe not anymore with the cost of capital that he's got, but early on when he was raising capital, he was buying stuff at a discount. And so really making sure you have a margin of safety is really important. So where are we focused at? Still love. Class B multifamily, Midwest focused on that front. We'll continue to do those projects. Neighborhood retail shopping centers that have traffic counts 25 to 50,000 per day that you can't build next to and they're surrounded by residential communities that can support that shopping center that have some sort of value add either through the cosmetic upgrades or operational efficiency, flex industrial properties. So buildings that have spaces under 100,000 square feet that have maybe some office component, but also have the ability to have their warehouse in the back end is a great space to be in. Self-storage I think is an awesome space if you can find those opportunities, which I'm finding is fragmented on the smaller scale, but still a lot of opportunities there. And then mobile home communities have always been of interest to us. One thing that's always kept us from going into that is the operational side of mobile home communities. We are not set up and there aren't really that many third parties that you can really just tap into and say, hey, I'm going to fire this property manager and put this one on. It just there's not that many out there, and those typically are smaller opportunities as well. So when I look at that, I think about macro. I think about where our funds going to be, where are people going to work, where are people going to live, and where are people going to shop, and where I want to be placing investor capital and our capital is in places that I think they're going to continue to go to, and the data supports that over the last two years. And if we can make it past the last two years, let's just say one and a half years, because after the influx of capital, everything just went wonky, but essential businesses is where I want to put our investor and our capital at. So those are some of the things that I'd be thinking about going into a recession. When we get into the multifamily space, Jim, I would just say this. Class A is an interesting, really interesting place to be at because I see Kansas City, I see everything that's being built. And I frankly wonder who's moving to all of these Class A buildings downtown, but they continue to build them and they continue to be full. And so one thing I'm tracking really closely is what is the unemployment rate? What is the labor shortage? And what are the immigration laws that we're going to see in the next 12 to 24 months? Something that I don't think a lot of people talk about is our immigration policy. Because if we have all these jobs, available for individuals, but nobody's willing to go work with them. Guess what? I think at some immigration policy is going to change. And as the United States of America have the ability to turn on a dime and get a lot of influx of people wanting to move here. That is something that Linneman and some of these other smarter guys talk about a lot, but I've just recently started to really understand because these things are long-term holds. We are out of the flip game. The last 10, 12 years buying a deal, letting it ride and not do anything to it, and then selling it for 200 basis points lower, that's over. We are in the game of adding value, and we're in the game of making sure that the intrinsic value of the cash flows, you've discounted those correctly, and you can operate through a hard time. And I think that my word for this year is Nassim Tlaib's book, Anti-Fragile. My word or my theme this year is Anti-Fragility. And I keep hearing, stay alive till 25. I don't agree with it. We can thrive in CRE in 23. How about that? And I stole that from Rod Santamassimo. Thrive in CRE in 2023. There's always opportunities, but as passive investors, you really got to tighten up your due diligence process with the operators, the intrinsic values of the cash flows and margin of safety with the basis. That's. I'll just leave it at that because I've just talked for a long period of time. But That was great stuff. What is stay alive in 25? I haven't heard that. Yeah. Stay alive in 25 goes back to the mantra of, and this is Sam Zell's book again, Am I Being Too Subtle? Back in 93, it was stay alive till 95. And there were some things going on in the commercial real estate market at that point where people were just trying to stay alive and not go under, right? Stay on the field. And so I've started to see some folks on LinkedIn and other places post It's 2023, we got to stay alive till 25. And that's just a kind of a mantra of, hey, if you did do the best deals the last two years, you're going to just try to stay alive the next two years. I look at that and maybe that's the case for some individuals, but that's not the mentality that we ever have. And the hard part about right now, which for operators, in my opinion, are starting to see a dislocation. A dislocation in two fronts. One, seller with a bid ass gap between sellers and buyers, right? We all see that price index is down 13% year over year. We're back to pre-COVID levels on a commercial property index level. But what's different? Well, interest rates went up 425 basis points. So that's different and potentially recession is different. But as an operator, these periods of times where all of the easy money and easy capital and easy deals goes away is typically when the best deals are had. And here's what I mean. April of 2019, let's take it back to April of 2019. World is going bonkers. Nobody knows what's happening with COVID-19. Property price index drops from 146 to 121 from April to October. Our firm bought a thousand multifamily units in that period of time. And it was very difficult to get investors comfortable to find debt for all these properties. You mean April of 2020, correct? April 2020. Yes.
0: Yes. Sorry. Right. Okay. I just want to make sure so we're on the same page. Keep going.
1: Yes. April 2020 to October of 2020. Property prices were dipping. Nobody knew if people were going to be able to... Remember the National Multifamily Housing Council's tracker that they had on how many people are paying rent and all that. Everybody was looking at that on a daily basis. That was a good time to be purchasing. And we had this weird influx of, okay, declining price values, so increasing cap rates, but also we started to see debts start to come available. And when those two influxes, some really good deals happened, but that period of time was really short. Here's the only way that operators were able to capitalize on that, is if they were still underwriting Still building relationships, still finding investors, and still communicating. That was the only way that they were able to capitalize on those opportunities. And I feel like we're in that period of time right now where buyers and sellers are starting to try to figure each other out. Investors and sponsors are trying to figure each other out on what is the new return threshold or what is real estate going to be able to offer with these higher interest rates. And that's causing dislocation. But if you don't stay on the game and stay in the game and stay on the field, and underwrite 3,000 deals like we did last year, you're going to be looking through the rear view mirror and not the windshield. Meaning you're gonna be looking at Yardy and CoStar and all the things that have happened instead of being active out there, finding those opportunities for your investors, for your firms, even though it's difficult, it's frustrating, it's upsetting, but you can't make deals. But you get one, you get two. We did five this year. I'm very excited about those five, but they were very five out of 3,000, Jim, five out of 3,000. I don't know what the percentage is there, but it's very low. We're in that same period of time, but if you stop now and you stop looking into real estate, you're going to miss some of the best opportunities that will come because once the capital starts to flow back in, once people feel better about interest rates, once all those things happen, guess what? Then all the capital is going to flood back in. And then Howard Mark's mantra of the seven most deadly words in investments, which is too much money chasing too few deals, is going to come right back. And so it's this weird like dichotomy of the best time to do deals is the hardest time, and the hardest time to do deals is the best time. And, anyways, those are my thoughts on that. And I think that Sam Zell said it best when everybody's going left. You got to look right. And I think Buffett said something similar. When everybody is zigging, you got to zag. And that's not easy to do, but you got to zag the right way. And you got to zag in the most conservative, best way possible. But stopping what you're doing, changing your investment thesis, just because other people are, is not the way to do so, in my opinion.
0: That makes sense to me. So I wanted to talk to you across the time here, but I want to make sure I get this in is how does an investor get comfortable with an operator who is new to an asset class? Like you guys are, I think, fairly new to retail or also someone, a firm who hasn't been around since 2010 or 2012, because a lot of people want the experience and it's difficult for an investor. I want that experience, but I also, I don't want to miss out on somebody new who has new ideas and is doing something just because they haven't been doing it for 20 years. Doesn't mean they're any worse. So How do you navigate that as an operator when you're talking to your investors, getting into a new asset class or just being relatively new as far as experience?
1: Yeah. Okay. So two parts here. Let's go with the experience part first, because... This is more of the intangible kind of relationship type of touchy-feely, not quantitative, more qualitative kind of piece of this. And this is the more difficult part. But there are some great resources out there. Joe Fairless's book, I don't remember what it's called. It's a big, thick book on real estate syndication. In that book, there's about 50 or 60 questions that he recommends new investors to ask their sponsors. And I have been on countless calls with investors that have that list and they are asking me them verbatim just going to I took it on myself the liberty to fill those questions out for investors before we have our call that's one right is just let's get the data let's just see that and if that's a if it's a hard pass because of that or they're not willing to share or answer those questions probably a hard pass because it's probably not the right fit so, if you get over that hump, then it's okay. What are the expectations that you have as an investor versus what we can provide as a sponsor? And I have come to the conclusion that there are enough groups out there available for people to invest with that each group operates a little bit different. And so you need to have the expectations set up clear. Do I need monthly communication, weekly communication? Daily communication. What do I need from a tax standpoint? When do I need my K1s to be in? What's the communication protocol from when I have a question? Is that question being answered? All of these things, because I have new investors that have expectations that are much higher than maybe somebody who's in 30 syndications that has been in the game for quite some time. They get it, it's a longer-term hold, they understand there's ups and downs, all of that stuff, and they're widely different. And typically, the more sophisticated investor who's in more syndications has more realistic expectations than maybe somebody just starting off into this world. And frankly, there are firms out there that have many more IR folks than we do here that can get daily communication. They have weekly webinars that you can engage with, and that's fantastic we do not have the ability to do that because we are running our company as profitable and lean as possible. Like I said, we have 28 employees, but not all of them are dedicated to investor relations. And so I think just having the expectations of what do I need for this experience to feel good for me is really important because I'll tell you, the middle market manager kind of spot is typically where you're going to find some of the better multifamily deals because or just investments because somebody came across something or they ran it down and they may not have the most robust investor management software with reports and all of these different things, but they have enough. Right. And then that might be okay for somebody because they're getting what they believe to be a better deal. But then you have somebody that maybe came from CrowdStreet and now they're investing directly with sponsors and they have engaged with this awesome, incredible, beautiful tech platform that. They can log into they can see all of their distributions they have their capital accounts everything is perfect they have a dedicated customer service team and that's what they want to make it feel comfortable because they can chat bot somebody and get a response in two minutes that's a different expectation and so i would just say for passive investors if it's a new sponsor or a new group that doesn't have 15 20 25 years worth of track record make sure you have at least your non-negotiables ready. These are my non-negotiables. If you can't meet them, even if it's the best deal in the world, you should not accept the investor's funds and that investor should not invest with you. And I have told that to many people because we are always getting better. We are always learning in this business. What I can say is we have some of the better deals that I've seen out there, but if you need the best, most robust CrowdStreet type of experience, that's not FTW. That's CrowdStreet, that's Realty Mogul, that's all of those different groups. But you're going to get a different type of investment in that as well. And so I've had a lot of those conversations with individuals. And I think that's set... And honestly, there's been a lot of those investors that have found us through a Google search that have invested through CrowdStreet or something like that. And I've explained this to them. And at the beginning of the conversation, they're like, yeah, it's probably not the right fit for me. But at the end, they're like, let's just stay in touch. And then they stay on the list. And we have webinars. They get to know me because guess what? The bigger the firm, typically the harder to get to the principals. And what we have been able to do is remove that kind of communication threshold. My investors know how to get a hold of me. They have my cell phone number. We text pictures of kids back and forth, all of that stuff. So again, different type of experience than maybe origin investments or something like that. Not One not is not better than the other. It's just a different experience. So I would say have your non-negotiables ready, understand what is going to make it feel like a good experience for you. And if that sponsor isn't willing to answer those questions or you don't like the answers to those questions, move on to the next one okay so that was the first piece the second piece is asset classes and there's a lot of ways to go around this there are some individuals that specifically west coast investors that have a really hard time investing into retail just in general because of what is they're typically tech investors and they buy things offline and they believe e-commerce is taking over the world i'm not going to convince that person the person that i'm going to have influence on is somebody that said, hey, I'm heavily allocated to multifamily. I'm really interested in triple net leases and more just stable income type of opportunities. I believe people are gonna continue to shop and I like that thesis, but I'm just not quite sure. Like, What value can you add to a shopping center? And so that is somebody that I can walk through the process of, hey, here's how we redeveloped this one. Here's how we carved off the pad site, sold it back and returned all of the equity or a lot of the equity back into the deal. Those are the types of things that work in those scenarios, but you have to be open to it. I would say there's two levels to do it. One is on a macro level. Go to Marcus and Millichap. look at their reports, look at ULI's reports, look at all the big brokerage firm reports in there, put out trends reports. There's some awesome trends reports that you can look into. And then you go into the micro level. Okay, retail in Los Angeles is a lot different than retail in Overland Park, Kansas, right? And so you have to look at those two different things. So you develop a thesis around one thing from a macro level, then you find it on a micro level that you feel good from a geographic location and those demographics and or demand drivers that you feel comfortable with, I would say that's the starting point on these different asset classes because it's not just retail. Industrial is the same thing. Multifamily property or 12-month leases on retail and industrial, we have three, five, seven-year leases. And so that impacts the business plan and what you can do to add value to these different properties. And so I always go back to the graph of, here's the core plus value add and opportunistic asset classes. And here's the risk and reward profiles. And so I, I use that a lot to explain where our asset classes are. And the projects are on that spectrum to try to educate some of our investors. We've done a lot of deep dives in regards to the data. I've got an awesome is retail dead kind of webinar presentation that I have recorded multiple times. We've got plenty of data around all that and understanding that data from your perspective and then thinking about it from a trend standpoint and then looking at the geographic locations that you're interested in. I think that is the place that you start with on the asset types and the different classes that are available to you. And it's harder though on assets outside of multifamily because there's so much more education available for multifamily than there is maybe for, let's say, car washes or mobile home parks. Mobile home parks have taken off, but maybe car washes or shopping centers or something like that.
0: That's great stuff. The last question I always ask is, what's a great podcast that you listen to? You already mentioned a couple, but if you want to repeat those or mention some other ones, that'd be great.
1: Yeah, I am real big right now on my physical and mental health. And one that I am absolutely loving is the Huberman Labs. Andrew Huberman is a scientist, a neuroscientist at Stanford. He got me doing cold plunges every single day in my backyard. Just things that I can take from a science standpoint that's backed by empirical evidence and studies and then implement them in regards to what I do on a regular basis to try to become a better version of myself, I'm obsessed with. And so Huberman Labs is one that I'm absolutely loving right now outside of the real estate ones that I've already talked through. And if you'll allow me, I'll teach you guys something from the Huberman Labs. It's called the physiological sigh. And if you are ever feeling, like right now, I've talked a lot, I'm out of breath, all these different things. If you're ever feeling anxiety or feel like you elevated heart rate, you do uh, what's called the physiological sigh. So it's two breaths in through the nose. (sighs) and then a long exhale through the mouth, and do that two to three times, my heart rate goes from 85 to 70. And it's just an incredible thing that you can do throughout the day that allows you to reduce that heart rate and become more serene and have lower stress levels and better heart rate variability. So there's an actionable tip from the podcast.
0: That's awesome. I listened to him too, but I've turned it off lately just because even though I listen to my podcast at two times speed, his podcasts
1: are so long that I just, I can't get through it. So that's the only thing stopping me. So I listened to most of his YouTube clips is what I, they snip them up and I I just grab those YouTube clips. And then if I like it, I go listen to the two hour thing for sure. Oh, that's smart. So if listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? I'm active on LinkedIn every single day, minus Sunday. That is my day of rest. Logan Freeman, Mr. Kansas City on LinkedIn post there daily. And then fgwinvestmentsllc.com is our website. A lot of these resources and things like I've talked about are all on there. have a blog that I think people will find a lot of value in as well. Awesome. I'll put that all in the show notes. And thank you so much, Logan, for being on the podcast. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks for having me, Jim. Aspen Funds has been a consistent supporter of left field investors. You may have seen Bob Frazier on an LFI webinar or at our October meetup in the left field speaking on investable megatrends for the next decade. Whether you're an accredited investor interested in mortgage note funds with a 10-year track record or other macro-driven alternative investments such as industrial, oil and gas, multifamily or retail, the Aspen Funds team is keeping track of the economic trends and co-invest on every deal right alongside you. Meanwhile, you get to do what you love and make every moment count. Download their free economic report today at aspenfunds.us LFI. Do you love coffee? Have you ever wanted to invest directly in the coffee industry? You can invest now in the number one largest coffee producer in the country of Colombia, the Green Coffee Company. Headquartered in the U.S., they are now Colombia's largest coffee producer and have opened their $100 million Series C funding round to accredited investors. The Green Coffee Company has over 7 million coffee trees and is on track for a 2026 sale or IPO projecting an 11x ROI for investors. Discounts are available for early funding, but there's limited capacity available. To invest, visit legacy-group.co and click the current offerings tab. That's The Current Offerings tab at legacy-group.co. There's a lot of great content in there. Logan just has a lot of really thoughtful things to say. And a lot of people say, think differently, like he did. I mean, it's one of the taglines of left-field investors, think differently. And I think we do that. Logan, he says, think differently. And he also, he seems to do it. And that's why I think he's shifting from multifamily into some of the other asset classes, because He's just thinking differently than other people and that leads him to to different places. And a lot of times that's the kind of people you want to hook on to are the ones that are thinking differently. And they had a few really good zingers in there and a confused mind always says, no, I think I've heard that before. But really, when you think about that, what he's saying is if you're trying to communicate something to people, they're going to say no, unless you can really explain it to them. And in the world of alternative investing, where everybody still has a lot of learning to do. That really hit me. That makes a lot of sense. Then he was talking about mentors and how people are always looking for mentors and you have to add value without asking for anything. And then you're going to get something in return. And when you do, you leverage the learning curve. That's the whole point of having a mentor because you're leveraging their knowledge and using it for your own. And I think that's just awesome. And then one of the things, unfortunately, this isn't video, so you didn't get to see it. But when he was talking about doing hard things, he was talking about the hard part is to do this. And he smiled and that really hit me because i'm thinking okay when things get difficult this is the guy you want to do something with because he relishes getting through the hard stuff because he knows that other people aren't going to do that and that's where you gain advantages right where you're the riches are in the niches as he said that uh, russell gray said and that's true but also you got to jump in there and the niches are where the hard you got to work harder you got to do more stuff because not everyone's doing it and so when you run into a guy who smiles when he says the hard part that makes me think all right he relishes this and that might be a guy worth doing some business with the other thing he was talking about you gotta zag when everybody else zigs or you zig when everybody zags i forget which the warren buffett saying but what he said logan at the end was you gotta zag the right way. So if you're zagging when everybody else is zigging, that's great. That just means you're doing something different than the crowd. But you got to make sure that you're zagging in the right way. Man, I love that. That is just the coolest little saying. You got to make sure that you zag the right way. I don't think I can put that as the title of the podcast, but that might be the theme for 2023 for me. I'm going to zag, but I'm going to zag the right way. So that was fantastic. Thank you to Logan. We're definitely going to be keeping our eye on him and FTW as they as they go through the year. That's it for this time. We will see you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email jim at leftfieldinvestors.com.
3: Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by passive investing from left field and left field investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.